Amen. Amen. 1 Samuel chapter 30 tonight. 1 Samuel chapter 30. We're finishing up the book of 1 Samuel. We have been looking for the last couple months at the life of David where he was anointed to be the future king of Israel by Samuel. And now for approximately 10 years, God has been preparing David to be the ruler of his people, Israel. And for those 10 years, for much of it, Saul, the ruler of Israel, has been trying to hunt down David and murder him. And so we've been following this, and we're going to take this through to where tonight we see that, that Saul is literally now taken off of the scene, and where David now, in a sense, ha- has the, the opening, if you will, to now become the ruler of Israel. And we'll pick it up a couple months from now in 2 Samuel, where he actually then ascends the throne and begins to rule. So it's a good, good place to break. As I said earlier, uh, we're going to begin next week. Uh, a study of John 14, 15, 16, and 17, looking at those four chapters in, in depth as we look at the last words of Jesus to his disciples to really prepare us for the, for the Easter season this year, and then we'll come back to 2 Samuel. By the way, before we dive into it tonight, I, I hope that this is as much of an encouragement to you as it is to me, but I just want to remind you, we hear from people all over the United States and literally all over the world who are listening to our podcast from Tuesday night and Sunday and reading the blog on Monday. It's just, an, it's, it's a humbling, uh, incredible experience to hear uh, all these people who are in contact with us who tell us that the messages from God's Word are, are just so encouraging to them. So you guys are a part of that because of your support and, and what you do and you make this possible. Don't forget that the Word of God is not just going out to the folks who are physically sitting here on Tuesday night and on Sunday, but it's going all over the place. And we just appreciate all that make that possible. So we come tonight to First Samuel chapter 30. We ended last week where we saw that God skillfully extracted, if you will, David from this mess that he's gotten himself into. David had a relapse, spiritually speaking, really bad. Instead of, again, looking to God to guide him and lead him, he began to call the shots of his own life. He began to not go to God and seek his guidance and wisdom. And so he got himself tangled up with the enemies of God. And we saw where now he's with the Philistines, and the Philistines now want to go and fight the Israelites, his own people. And instead of him having to do that, God literally pulls him out of that situation. And so now beginning in chapter 30, David and his men begin to go back to Ziklag. And let's remember that Ziklag is this town that King Achish, one of the leaders of the Philistines, gave David to sort of hang out in while he was sort of in exile from his own country because he was trying to run from Saul. So let's pick it up then in 1 Samuel chapter 30. On the third day, David and his men came to Ziklag. Now the Amalekites had raided, literally stripped away in the Hebrew, the Negev and Ziklag. They attacked Ziklag and burned it. They took captive, literally leading away the women who were in it, from the youngest to the oldest. They didn't kill anyone, they simply carried them off and went on their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned. Their wives, sons, and daughters had been taken captive. 
Then David and the men who were with him wept loudly. In the Hebrew, they were wailing, the Hebrew says, until they could weep no more. David's two wives had been taken captive, Ahinoam and Abigail. And David was very upset. Again, in the original language, these words mean to be bound in a narrow, tight place causing distress. That's a real good picture. That's what happens to us in our lives. We're all bound up. We seem to be in a tight place. There doesn't seem to be any way out. And the rope, if you will, that's got us bound continues to tighten. That's that's what David was feeling. And no wonder, because notice it goes on to say, for the men were even thinking of stoning him. Each man grieved bitterly, literally was enraged over his sons and daughters. Now I want to stop there. We're going to come back and pick it up right there in just a few minutes. I want to stop there and then we're going to say a few things and then we're going to go on to chapter 31 and we're going to come back to where we left off because the main part of the message tonight deals with what is said after this. But I want to stop here for a moment and just take stock of where we're at and where David's at. I mean, he, God got him out of this mess, but now as he goes back to Ziklag, now he is beginning to realize just the immensity, if you will, of the consequences and ramifications of, of what he's done and how his decision and choices to sort of live apart from God and God's word and God's guidance for a time has not only negatively affected him, but how it's negatively affected everyone around him. And God, in a sense, by allowing this to happen, is taking all the support systems out of David's life. Everything that David knew... All his relationships, everything except these men that accompany him are gone. And now the Bible says even these men, these mighty men of David, want to stone him. So now even beyond the fact that, that he's in this mess again because of his own sin, now he's even feeling the rejection of his own men who've accompanied him throughout his journey of running for his life from Saul. I mean, you couldn't get much lower than where David's at right now, okay? This is just really, really a bad place for David, all right? But God's working, as we even saw last week. That, That God is working in David's life. And even as we said Sunday, God works through the pain of our life. And God is going to use the pain that David is going through because of his own choices, in a sense, to bring him back. In fact, David's going to be even stronger than he's been before because of these painful experiences. So we're going to see how that all happens a little bit later on. But for now, let's take a break. Because I want to end on a more positive note than chapter 31. And I want us to go over to chapter 31 and at least touch on what's happening here. Here is basically the end of Saul's life. And it's such a tragic end. It didn't have to happen this way. I mean, a couple decades earlier, Saul had such potential. He was this young man that the Spirit of God rushed on and... If Saul would have just kept his eyes on God and and obeyed God, 
Who knows where Saul could have ended up? But Saul began to drift away from God and his life ended so very tragically. In fact, just take a moment and go over to 2 Samuel, if you will. And beginning in verse 19 of 2 Samuel chapter 1, David is sharing sort of a lament of the death of Saul and Jonathan. And at the end of verse 19, David says, How the mighty have fallen. And if you wanted sort of a a superscript, a, a, a title, a banner over 1 Samuel chapter 31, that would be it. How the mighty have fallen. And obviously we know that Saul isn't the first person in history to have such great potential and to be in such a position of, of leadership and influence that he could have been used for so much good, but it didn't end up that way. Obviously, he wasn't the first, and he certainly isn't the last, because we see it even in our time. People who have so much potential, and, and they're in such positions of leadership and influence and power and all of that, and instead of using and leveraging all that they have for God and for righteousness and, and, and to help others, it doesn't work out that way. And so Saul's end is, is so tragic, and I... I don't want to share too much. It's, it's not, you know, not that we don't talk about what the Bible talks about, even when it's, it's not good, but it's pretty self-explanatory. I will share with you here in the first couple verses of chapter 31, the Philistines were fighting against Israel. The men of Israel fled from the Philistines. Many of them, though, fell dead on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines stayed right on the heels of Saul and his sons. Literally, they followed close in hot pursuit. They struck down Saul's sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Machishua. And of course, Jonathan is the one that stands out. David's great friend also died on the battlefield that day. And the Bible says Saul himself was in the thick of the battle. Literally, the Hebrew means he was heavy, weighed down, grievous, and he was going through something very hard. And the Bible says the archers spotted him and wounded him severely. Literally, he was in anguish, writhing in pain. I've never been shot with arrows, but I can only imagine. And it was probably going to be eventually a, flat, a fatal blow. So Saul says in verse 4 to his armor bearer, Hey, draw your sword and stab me with it. Let's get this over. Just pierce me through and kill me. Otherwise, he says, these uncircumcised people will come, stab me, and torture me. Literally, make a fool of me. Deal ruthlessly with me. His armor bearer wouldn't do it. So the Bible says in verse 4, Saul took his own sword and fell on it. And took his own life. One of the things that I want to point out tonight that I think is really important is when you look at the word fell there in the Hebrew language of 1 Samuel chapter 31, verse 4, it's a very interesting word. And part of that word's meaning is to waste away. And the reason I want to point that out is because it reminds us that Saul's fall here, if you will, that this final tragic fall where Saul actually takes his own life and passes from this earth to the next life, he didn't get to where he was overnight. That's the point. In other words, it's just like in our lives and in the lives of, of others. We may actually see the fall, if you will, a public fall or some public disgrace. But folks, it, it didn't start there. It, it didn't get there overnight. 
it was a wasting away of months and years and, and, and going further and further away because at any time, We've already seen throughout our study of David and Saul that Saul could have turned to the Lord, could have repented, could have gotten himself right with God, and could have gotten back on track spiritually. But he never took advantage of all the opportunities that God gave him to get back on track. He continued to waste away and got to this point where he was in such, even at this point, instead of turning to God, and saying, God, help me, whatever. He took matters into his own hands and he took his own life. Of course, the Bible says when the rest of the Israelites saw what happened to Saul and his sons, they abandoned the cities and the, the Philistines came in and occupied it all. And then the Bible says, in verse 8, the next day when the Philistines came to the battlefield and saw the corpses of Saul and his sons, they cut off Saul's head, verse 9, stripped him of his armor, sent messengers to announce the news in the temple of their idols among their people throughout the surrounding cities. And they placed Saul's armor, verse 10, in the temple of the Ashtoreths, which was the star deity of fertility of the Philistines, and hung his corpse on the city wall. A pretty, pretty tragic end to a life. Now the Bible does end this chapter in this book with the fact that the residents of Jabesh Gilead, when they heard what had been done to Saul, they rose up. They became strong in the Lord and they went up and they took Saul's body and the bodies of his sons and they gave him a proper burial. And what was interesting about that is if you go back to the beginning of Saul's life and reign in Israel... The residents of Jabesh Gilead were the very first people that Saul helped when he became king. And they never forgot it some 20 years later. And so when they heard how badly, in a sense, Saul had been treated by the Philistines, they, they wanted to make it right and give Saul and his sons a proper burial. And so they, they got stirred. It was like, we've had enough. We're not going to let the Philistines continue to treat our leaders and our people this way. It was almost like enough is enough, you know, like sometimes even us, you know, we, we can be pushed, 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 but eventually we get to the point where it's like, I'm done. I'm, I'm not going to be pushed any longer. I'm going to rise up. I'm going to stand up. I'm going to do something about this. That was the residence of Jabesh Gilead. But I want to go back now to chapter 30. Because the main thing I want to share with us tonight is this. We saw that Saul's end was pretty tragic, but God wasn't done with David yet. And David's life wasn't done yet either. God had plans. And so I wrote here in my Bible this before I read that last phrase from verse 6. No matter how low you and I ever go, the way back to the Lord is always open. Don't forget that. Because what I'm about to share with you folks tonight, it may not be for you. I want to encourage you to go out from here tonight and maybe begin to pray and ask the Lord, who can I share these encouraging words with? Is it somebody in my family? Is it a fellow Christian? Is it a friend that needs to hear this as well? Because sometimes, let's face it, David had gotten pretty low. He'd made a mess of his life because he had, for a time, 
turned his back on God and on God's guidance and wisdom and got himself in this terrible mess. And now he goes back to Ziklag and, and all of his family and everyone's family of all these warriors that have accompanied David are all taken captive. The, the city is burned. And now his own men want to stone him. As I said, you can't get much lower. But just like in our life, one of the things that this passage teaches us is that failure is not final. David failed. But his failure was not final. We need to be reminded of that. Because there's been times in our life where we failed the Lord. We, we were like Peter. We, didn't, we maybe denied the Lord or whatever. But failure doesn't have to be final. It wasn't with David. It doesn't have to be with us or anybody else. There is a way back, if you will. A way back. And I want to share with you what I see in this passage is, what is the way back to God? What did David do? Notice the last phrase of verse 6 of 1 Samuel chapter 30. I think one of the most important phrases or verses or, that we've looked at throughout our whole study of David because of where David was at when this took place. David was probably at his lowest point with God whenever the Bible says, but David drew strength from the Lord his God. That's huge. David, at the lowest point of his life, instead of continuing to go, well, I've just messed up, I might as well just pack it in. My life's done. God's done with me. There's nothing else for me. All of that. I, I, it's hopeless. God's never going to use me again. All these things. No. The Bible says at that moment, when David could have went there, when maybe we've went there, when maybe we know others went there, the Bible says David drew strength from the Lord his God. First, that I want to remind us of is this. One of the ways that I think David drew strength from the Lord was he was probably reminded at that point like we are about God's unconditional love. Remember what the name David means? The name David means beloved. That's what David's name means in the Hebrew language, beloved. And we talk a lot about God's love as Christians and followers of Christ and get all that. I'm going to be preaching on it on Sunday. But experientially, a lot of times, God's love really doesn't hit us until we've gotten to a point like David did where we've messed up so bad. And yet we still know, we, we still can sense that God unconditionally loves us. He can love us no less than He's ever loved us, and He can love us no more than He's ever loved us. That's how much God loves us. And I'm sure one of the things that encouraged David at this point was just God reminding him, David, in spite of the fact you've made a mess of your life right now and that your decisions and choices have so messed up other people's lives, I still love you. We all need to be reminded of that. God will never stop loving us. So the way back, I think, starts with this. Notice, first of all, an intentional, deliberate way. 
an intentional, deliberate way. What do I mean by that? Well, these two words, but David. In those words, the first two words of that phrase, but David, there is intentionality and something deliberate about that. Why? Because David had to intentionally get his focus off of the mess that he'd gotten himself in and everybody else. He had to get his focus off of the fact that his men wanted to stone him at that point, And he had to get his focus on God. There had to be something intentional and deliberate about David's focus. And yet I know in my own life, sometimes, especially when we mess up, it's very hard for me to stop beating myself up over what I've done or where I'm at and all of that and to somehow refocus myself back on God. But that's exactly what David had to do because that's how the way back starts. With intentionally and deliberately taking my focus of where I could go and continuing to beat myself up and wallowing in the the, the despair and the discouragement and the mess and everything else and to become, in a sense, so overwhelmed with where I'm at that I forget God loves me and God still has a plan and purpose for my life. There has to be something intentional and deliberate about that. Then notice, secondly, the way back is not only an intentional way, it is also an active way. What do I mean by that? Well, the the next two words in that phrase, but David drew strength, or in some translations, strengthened himself. That means that when you and I want strength from God, it can't be a passive thing. It has to be an active thing. I can't just sit on my hands and go, okay, God, strengthen me. In fact, in the Hebrew language, these words speak of a persistent and continuous effort to draw strength from God. I don't think this was even a one-time thing where David finds himself in this place and says, somehow God strengthened me through prayer. So then all of a sudden David is just, you know, supernaturally transported to some super strength person. No, I think that it it was a process. We don't know exactly how long, but at some point he had to go through his own effort to strengthen himself in God in an active way. Yes, God was doing it. It was a strength outside of himself. It wasn't somehow that he pulled himself up, as we say, by, by his own bootstraps. It wasn't that he looked inside of himself and found the strength that was there. No, it's the strength was in God. But he had to actively do what he could do to do it. It's it's still that way. If we want to strengthen ourselves or draw strength from the Lord, there's certain things that God says that this is what you need to do. You need to spend time with me. You need to pray. You need to study the word and read the word. You need to be around fellow Christians. And so, in, in a sense, it takes activeness to draw strength in the Lord. That's why I've said to you before, we misconceive or or misinterpret the word wait in the Bible. When the Bible says those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength and mount up like wings as wings like eagles, that the word wait is not being inactive. As I've said to you before, when you and I go out to a restaurant and someone waits on us, A good waiter or waitress, if you will, is very active. And so God is not saying to us, when you wait on me, you just sit around and let me do it all. No, we learn to become active in the things that we know God wants us in order to draw strength from the Lord. 
God's strength can come through His Word just by reading and reminding ourselves of His promises. But we've got to actively open up the book and read it and study it. And and we can draw strength from each other, but we've got to actively get out to church and get out to our services and get out to Bible studies and avail ourselves of the opportunity, the environment, in order to gain strength. This is what David did. So his way back to God was, first of all, intentional. Secondly, it was active. Third, it was personal. Notice the Bible says, but David drew strength from the Lord, his God. Folks, there, there is certainly time and place for us, as we've already said, to draw strength from each other. But there also comes that place where really the, the I've got to do it myself where I've got to have a personal relationship with God. The Lord, David said, is my shepherd. It's got to be a personal relationship and personal fellowship. There is a lot that fellow Christians and the godly and and whatever can do, but at the end of the day, it comes down to, to me and my own personal relationship with God. Because there's only so much that even my fellow Christians, family members, whatever, can do for me. Eventually it comes down to, I've got to want it. It's got to be there. There's got to be a relationship and fellowship with my God. I share that with you because as I, again, shared with some of you for years now about my own struggles with anxiety. And, and, and one of the other steps that I had to take in my own life was that in spite of maybe all the people that God brought into my life to try to help me with that struggle... The thing that really began to get me out of it is when I took responsibility for it and began to to lean upon my God and to spiritually grow with my God again and get in fellowship and in touch with my God on a better level than what I had. That's when it really took off has to be personal. I can't live off of the convictions of other people. I I can't even get to other levels, if you will, spiritually, just on the input of other people. Eventually, it's got to be mine. I've got to say, this is mine. This is my God. This is my time with Him. This This is Him speaking to me, not always through someone else. And so the way back to God is intentional. It is active. It is personal. Notice also, it's a repentant way. It's a repentant way. The word repentance means to change direction. And notice the Bible says after verse 6, David drew strength from the Lord his God, that then David said to the priest, Abiathar, son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. And remember we said the ephod was a priestly garment that was used to get direction from God. And the Bible says, Abiathar brought the ephod to David, verse 8, David inquired of the Lord. The reason why that's A sign of David's repentance is, again, for the last couple of months in David's life, he abandoned that practice. He was his own leader. 
He was calling the, his own shots in life. He was doing his own thing and not going to God for guidance. So now, as he begins to strengthen himself in the Lord, he is reminded, i got to make some changes. And one of the big changes I need to make is I need to get myself off the throne of my life and I need to put God back and I need to put God back in the driver's seat of my life and i got to get God back in control and I've got to start asking and inquiring of God before I do anything because every time I do something on my own without inquiring of God, David says, I have found that my life just ends up in a mess. So here I go. I'm going to change. I'm back to bring the ephod, Abiathar. I'm going to start asking God, what does he want me to do? If we want to get back to God, we've got to be willing to change. Because some of the habits, if you will, that we've adopted to get us away from God, we have to change to other habits, if you will. Again, whether it's abandoning our prayer life or our time in the Word or with other Christians, whatever that looks like, we've got to make changes in order to reestablish other things in our life and be repentant. Even Jesus said to the church in Revelation, those that had left their first love, repent and do the things that you did at first. And that's exactly what David's doing. So the way back is an intentional way, an active way, a personal way, a repentant way, and notice a surrendered way. A surrendered way. Because after they bring the ephod and David inquires of the Lord, notice the first two words of verse, or as we continue on in verse 8. David inquired of the Lord saying, Should I? <laughs> Should I? That's not like the David in just the flesh. The David in the flesh would have been, these enemies of God have taken my family. We're going down there and we're going we're gonna to whoop on them. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to ask God. And what if God says, no, I don't want you to go. What if God says, they're gone. You'll never get them back. What if God would have said that? David would have had to been okay with that. But David was realizing that the way back to God is when I realize not only do I got to stop calling the shots, but whatever God's choice is, whatever his desires, whatever his will, I got to surrender. I got to surrender. And so David says, should I pursue this raiding band? The next part, it's not only a surrendered way, it's a trusting way. Why do I say that? Well, after David asked God the question, should I pursue this raiding band? He then asked the question to God, will I overtake them? Very interestingly, in the Hebrew language, these words literally mean, will I have enough? In a sense, it's almost like David saying to God, do I have what it takes anymore? I think his confidence was shaken. We know what that's like. Especially if in our past, like with David, we've seen maybe great victories and we've seen God use us like he did fighting Goliath and all these different things that David did, but now he's drifted away from God and he's probably going, do I still got it? (laughs) 
do I have enough? And, and I think even, be, even more than even him personally, I, I think it probably was even a, a logistical, r- real technical question like, you know, do we have enough guys to be able to go down there and overtake this raiding party and get all of our family back if they haven't slaughtered them already or who knows what they've done to them? Do I have enough, God? And Dave is going to have to trust. Because even though here in the next verse, or the next phrase of this verse, God tells him, yes, I want you to pursue them. And then God attaches a promise because he said, pursue for you will certainly overtake them and carry out a rescue, literally a deliverance. You're going to snatch them away. God doesn't tell him all the ways that that's going to happen. And that's why it's a trusting way. Because even with us, we're going to get to a point like we always do with God, where God is saying, here's what I want you to do. We, we've, we've inquired of God. We've surrendered to God. Whatever, whatever you want, I'll do. But God doesn't lay it all out there for us at the very beginning. He says, okay, here's the next thing I want you to do. Just pursue them. And I'm sure in David's mind, he's like, well, uh, where are they at? And how am I going to find them? And again, are we going to have, a, how, how are we going to overtake them when I get there? God doesn't, he just says, pursue, you will deliver them. But I'm not going to give you all the details. That's trusting. That's trusting. And so notice what happens. David went, accompanied by his 600 men. When they came to the Wadi Besor, those who were in the rear stayed there. David and 400 men continued to pursue, but 200 men who were too exhausted, literally too faint, to cross the Wadi stayed there. Now notice this. This is really cool. Verse 11. Then they found an Egyptian in the field. Oh, just by the way, he just happened to be there. You know what the word found here in the Hebrew means? To be enough. Isn't that cool? David was asking, trusting, do I have enough? And God, God gave him a promise that I want you to go. You will deliver them. I'm not going to tell you. And on their way there, they just happened to find an Egyptian. And guess what? Here God is saying, I'll give you on your journey to do what I'm asking you to do enough of what you need to get it done. And that's what God does with us. He doesn't lay it all out for us at the beginning, but he is saying to us, and we've got to trust that throughout our journey with him and whatever his will is for my life, whatever he's called me to do, whatever he's commanded me to do, he will make sure that I have everything that I need. I will have enough to accomplish his will. That's why as Christians, we never have to worry about do we have the resources and all of this to do. All we have to care ourselves about is, is this God's will? If it's God's will, then God said, I will show up every time. And that's exactly what he was doing here. By planting that Egyptian right there and having David and his men meet that Egyptian, God was saying, see, I'm going to supply you with everything you need to get to where you need to get and to do what you need to do for me. You got to trust. So the Bible says they gave him bread to eat, water to drink. They gave him a slice of pressed figs, two bunches of raisins to eat. And this greatly refreshed him. Because sometimes more than even just being emotionally exhausted, this poor man was physically exhausted. He had not eaten food or drink or water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, to who do you belong and where are you from? And the young man said, I'm an Egyptian, a servant of an Amalekite, and my master abandoned me. And here's why, because I was ill for three days. Literally abandoned means deserted, forsook. Such a contrast to God who says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. 
And yet here's this Amalekite who, because the Egyptian, for whatever reason, for three days, became weakened and, and sick and ill and maybe couldn't keep up for three days, he just left him behind. And we conducted a raid, he says in verse 14, on the Negev. Well, obviously, then David said to him in verse 15, can you take us down to this raiding party? He would know where they're at. God gave him enough to get it done. Of course, the Egyptians said, well, you got to swear to me that when I get down there, you're not going to kill me or hand me over to my master. If you do that, I'll take you down. So he took David down. They found them spread out, verse 16, over the land. They were eating and drinking and actually celebrating with a feast is what the words enjoying themselves in the Hebrew means because of all the loot that they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. Well, the Bible says David struck them down from twilight until the following evening. None of them escaped without exception except 400 young men who got away on camels. But notice verse 18. David rescued, recovered, retrieved everything the Amalekites had taken. He also rescued his two wives. There was nothing missing, whether small or great. He retrieved sons and daughters, the plunder, everything else they had taken. David brought everything back. Sometimes when you and I mess up, like David, one of the things that probably goes through our mind is, am I ever going to be able to recover? And David recovered it all. Didn't lose anything. In fact, David took all the flocks, the herds, drove them in front of the rest of the animals. People were saying, this is David's plunder. These are his spoils of war. Then David approached the 200 men who had been too exhausted to go with them, those whom they had left at the wadi. They went out to meet them, David and the people who were with him. And when David approached the people, he asked how they were doing. Pretty interesting. They were exhausted, too exhausted to go, but he was concerned about how they were doing. Notice all the evil and worthless men among those who had gone with David said, since they didn't go with us, we won't give them any of the loot we retrieve. They may take only their wives and children and let them be led away and be gone. The word evil there in verse 22 literally means unhappy and unpleasant. And the word worthless means unprofitable. These poor, unhappy, unpleasant people couldn't see it within their hearts to share what they had gotten with anybody else. They didn't help us, so they don't deserve any of it. But notice David's response, verse 23. No, you shouldn't do this, my brothers. Look at what the Lord has given us, what he's entrusted to us. He has protected us or preserved us and has delivered us into the ha- delivered into our hands the raiding party that came against us. And then he says, who will listen to you? Literally agree or consent to what you're saying in this matter. The portion or share or reward of the one who went down into the battle will be the same as the portion of the one who remained with the equipment. Let their portions, their allotment, their share be the same because the way back to God is finally a generous way. We are reminded that because God has been so good and gracious to us and allowed us to experience victory once again in our lives, and has entrusted us with all this. Who are we to keep it all for ourselves, David says. We need to share. We need to be generous instead of hoarding it all. In fact, the Bible says from that time onward, it was a binding ordinance, literally a prescribed law for the nation of Israel right up to the present time. In fact, the Bible says then in verse 26 through 31 that when David came to Ziklag, 
He even sent some of the plunder to the elders of Judah who were his friends. These were people who had helped David throughout his 10 years of running for his life from Saul. And he did not forget. So when God blessed his life and gave him something, then he wanted to make sure that he was able to bless those who had blessed him earlier. In fact, he says, here's a gift for you from the looting of the Lord's enemies. And then the Bible tells all the people that David basically gave these gifts to. By the way, the word gift there in verse 26 literally means a blessing causing someone to kneel. It's as if God, through David, blessed these people and now have caused them, in a sense, to kneel and worship God for what God has done for David. That's a good place to be. So as we end our study of David, at least at this point, to the point where now we see that Saul has been removed and David now is able to take the throne, we end on this note tonight. No matter how low you and I go, let's remember, the way back to the Lord is always open. Failure is never final with God. The way back is an intentional way, an active way, a personal way, a repentant way, a surrendered way, a trusting way, a generous way. This is how David got himself back, if you will, into close, intimate fellowship with God. And that's possible for any one of us. All of us have fallen at times in our life, all of us have failed. It doesn't have to be the end. David drew strength from the Lord his God at the lowest point of his life. If David can do it, you can do it. Anybody can do it. So maybe tonight this message was not for you. But maybe you're here tonight by divine appointment of God, just like that Egyptian so that God can now allow you to share some of these encouraging words with somebody that you know who's maybe, maybe they've failed, maybe they've fallen, and they're having a real hard time, if you will, getting back up and moving forward with God. Maybe they're continuing to beat themselves up. Maybe they're just throwing up their hands in hopelessness and saying, well, I'm just never going to be any use to God or whatever, and so I'm just going to give in to the world and I'm done. Use tonight's message to encourage them that failure is never final. Let's pray. God, we thank you for including in your word the life of David. Lord, a lot of great ups, a lot of high moments in David's life, even to still come. But Lord, we also see a lot of low moments, a lot of tragic moments, a lot of moments, Lord, where he's so far away from you. And the consequences of his bad choices have put him in such a bad place. And yet, God, once again, we are reminded that he was beloved just as we are beloved by you unconditionally. 
There is nothing we could ever do to stop you from loving us. And maybe when David realized that when he was at his lowest, you still loved him, maybe that's what began to draw him back to receive the strength that he would need to move on with his life from you. God, I pray tonight that maybe there's someone here. They have recently maybe failed you in some way. May this message be an encouragement to them. Or maybe there are people here tonight that you know that they know somebody that needs to hear this message. That needs to be encouraged by what David went through in his own life. That you still had great plans and purposes and a great future for this David. That the best days of his life weren't behind him. So God, I pray tonight that however you want to use this message in our lives, help us to receive it, to take it in, to even maybe meditate on it and, and walk with it for the next couple of days. Most of all, God, just help us to remember how much you love us. And God, we just say back to you, we love you too. In Jesus' name, amen. Folks, thanks for...